Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. The title of the book uh, is an oxymoron, uh, that you can't be a democratic teacher in a mainstream school with things as they are in England right now, with the uh, emphasis on uh, test scores, prescriptive curriculums, authoritarian hierarchical structures, behaviour management, Ofsted league, league tables, etc, etc, etc. In fact, um, I've often said myself that uh, it's almost impossible to stop young humans learning, but schools manage it somehow. Um, anyway, this talk is... Uh, about the title of the book, Another Way is Possible, Becoming a Democratic Teacher in a State School. And it's basically my story. It's the story, uh, uh, you know, uh, please leave now. <laughs> if you don't want to hear my story, I don't know as I'd particularly want to hear it anyway. Well, no one's gone, so thank you for that. So it's, just, it's uh, the story of the evolution and implementation of two guiding principles in my sort of professional life. First, that student participation in decisions about their own learning or self-directed learning or self-directed education or self-managed learning, all the same as far as I'm concerned, um, is crucial. That's the first principle. And the second one is that student participation in democratic decision-making, the creation of a rights-respecting democratic context for the learning, which is in itself a major source of learning about who you are, about democracy, about citizenship. So this involved attempting to create non-coercive spaces within a compulsory school system, which is substantially coercive, authoritarian and hierarchical. I didn't know if it could be done, but I thought it was worth a try. I thought I'll become an educational opportunist without a clear plan but with these two firm guiding principles, and then I'll make it up as I go along and we'll see where it goes. I would become what John Abbott described in his book as a responsible subversive. I rather like that idea, responsible subversive. Anyway, the book's in four parts. Where did the ideas come from? Part one. Secondly, implementing them in a South Midlands secondary modern school. Thirdly, reflecting on what it all meant and what it has to say for now. And then the conclusion is about can state schools move towards becoming democratic learning communities uh, these days with an afterward on what does it mean for the future, particularly with relevance to reference to climate change and the fourth industrial revolution. And I add on the end a couple of talks that I've given at recent conferences in Greece and the Ukraine. Anyway, it starts with my own school experience. My dad grew up in Dublin and was a bus driver. And uh, I went to primary school in South London where he got a job when life got tough in Ireland. I was put in the top, top stream of a primary school. Streaming appeared to me to be based mainly on where you lived. Apart from me and my friend Dave, our top stream class was made up of posh kids from detached houses with cars and televisions who would probably pass the 11 plus, I was told, and go to grammar school. The middle stream seemed to live in the local semi-detached houses 
um, not the posh houses, and they seemed to be lined up for technical school, though unfortunately there wasn't one in our area. They had to go out of the area. The council estate kids like me lived in the bottom stream, were in the bottom stream, who would almost certainly go to a secondary modern school. I couldn't work out why I was in the top stream, but the whole thing struck me as totally unfair and all to do with social class, or at least I didn't know that's what it was then, but what kind of house you lived in, which was the same thing. Primary school was boring and tedious preparation for the 11 plus, even though you weren't supposed to be able to prepare for it. So it gave me quite an introduction to the English class system. Anyway, school never seemed to be interested in what I was interested in. They just seemed to want to make me feel anxious and that I was no good at things. I passed the 11 plus and actually I got an interview for a very posh public school. Quite funny, really. Dulwich College. Uh, it, it was very interested in the parents, more interested in the parents than me, I felt. And they sent my dad a long form. But the first question on the form was the father's occupation. And my dad told me he wrote none of your fecking business, um, which is a sort of Irish way of saying something rather ruder. Uh, anyway, I didn't get the place. Surprising, surprising. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I went to grammar school. And uh, throughout grammar school, I remember being asked over and over again, what does your father do by the head teacher? I opted for Latin because my dad says, I should do the Latin, you know, you might want to be a priest. <laughs> wasn't, but I wasn't terribly keen on the idea, but I signed up for Latin and the head teacher asked me, what does my father do? I didn't actually say none of your freaking business. I wish I had in a way because I didn't see what business it was of his. Anyway, later on, I had to choose whether to do Greek or art. And my dad said again, I oh, might want to be a priest or a doctor. You, know, you should do the Greek. So I signed up for Greek. I got the same question. What does your father do? In the first year at grammar school, I came more or less top at everything in the first year. And, in the, and then at the end of the second year, I came last at everything. And nobody bothered to find out why. I was just told to pay attention. Hannah. Well, I was bored stiff. Needless to say, I was not welcomed into the sixth form. The best bit of grammar school was learning to fly a little chipmunk aeroplane through the uh, air training corps. Also, at that time, I learned to sail, which is beautiful, been a great part of my life. We had a not very religious vicar where my mum cleaned the church. And the church was mainly full of rather nice people. Um, and my mum was probably the only person that ever went in the church from my part of town. Um, he had a system which I liked. Most of the other schools were from prep schools or public schools, but I got in on his annual sailing expedition because my mum cleaned the church. And the way he did things, I quite liked it. I didn't like the other kids much, but I did like what he did. He rented six sailing boats, had the engines disconnected, and crewed them with kids. And we went sailing off on the North Norfolk Broads at Easter, which was often quite stormy. And what he did was, the first time you went, you were a cabin boy or girl. The second time, you were a second mate. The third time, you were a first mate. And if you went on a fourth trip, you skippered a boat. And because my mum always cleaned the church, I got on all these trips for free. So I ended up as a skipper of a quite a big boat in quite bad weather on the Norfolk Broads with a crew of posh kids. It was, uh, 
quite fun, one of my best memories of school. And, but what I liked about it was you got given responsibility as you became competent, not because of what class you came from or how much money your mum and dad had. It was all to do with competence. And that stuck in my mind as rather an important principle. Well, anyway, school gave me no careers advice. I got a bit from my dad, which is get a job indoors where you have carpets on the floor and get paid monthly. He was very upset as a bus driver that in the canteen at Bromley Bus Garage, they had lino on the floor on the driver's canteen. And in the manager's canteen, they had carpets on the floor. So he always said to me, get a job somewhere where you get a carpet and you get paid monthly. Well, my experience of work before becoming a teacher was pretty dull. I worked in the parks department of the London County Council, keeping a check on their posters. Then I trained as a surveyor. I didn't really know what it was, but it seemed more interesting than being a clerical officer, so I applied for it. I qualified as a valuation surveyor. That was quite funny. One of the draftsmen in the drawing office was a drummer, and he used to take a council car to pubs down the old Kent Road at lunchtime and do a two-hour gig and then get back to work in the afternoon. And I was a jazz keyboard player, so he took me with him. Well, some of my best memories of working for the London County Council were going to pubs down the old Kent Road in rather extended lunch hours and topping up my salary. But while I was working for the LCC, um, I discovered the teacher's library, which is in the middle of County Hall, a sort of spiral, beautiful library. And I started reading books that were interesting to me, mainly philosophy books. Anyone here does philosophy? I went from Annex and Manda to Zeno uh, on this dusty shelf that no one ever read. I couldn't get a reader's ticket, so I used to carry a bag instead. I used to always bring the books back after I'd nicked them. It was sometimes more dangerous uh, taking them back than borrowing them in the first place. Anyway, then I got a job in a therapeutic community for mentally ill young people. That was fascinating. The treatment was living together rather than drugs and electric shocks or brain surgery, which was still going on then. People were having leucotomies, having their frontal lobes dissociated from the rest of their brain by surgery. But none of that went on. And one of the lovely things about this community was from the top consultant down to the newest admission, everyone was on first name terms. And I realised what it was like to work in a in, a, in an environment that was non-hierarchical, where very little of the medications that were normally used and the electric shock treatments that were normally used for psychiatric people, none of them were used in this place. The whole treatment was talking. And I thought, well, if mentally ill young people can work like this, it was very successful. The readmission rate was very low. It began to dawn on me that that's what school should have been like, non-hierarchical. Um, and uh, then I got a job for working for Oxfam. And I became an assistant area organiser. I used to go into schools and talk about third world problems with groups of sixth formers. And I realised I, I was quite good at it. I used to get invited back and we started Oxfam groups in lots of schools. And uh, I thought, well, I got married. I'd got a couple of kids. I thought maybe I need a proper job at last after all this messing about. I was a qualified surveyor, um, but I didn't like that much. So I thought, I know, I'll train to be a teacher. Well, teacher training um, was really a bit of a waste of time. 
I think three years in teacher training, I could probably have been just as good a teacher before I went to teacher training as afterwards. So I did three years teacher training and I had a bit of a dispute with the psychology lecture. He was a behaviorist enthusiast. And uh, I thought, wait a minute, um, I don't want to teach salivating dogs. I want to teach kids. So I thought this Pavlov bloke didn't have a lot that was very interesting to say. And then we moved on to Skinner. I thought, no, 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 I don't want to teach rats to pull levers. I want to work with kids. And uh, this bloke got a bit fed up with me criticising and asking difficult questions all the time in his psychology lectures. And in the end, we did a deal. I would go to the library and more or less create my own psychology course on condition. And he let he put some questions in the exam to suit me as long as I cleared off and left him alone. Well, that was fine by me. So I discovered another library full of dusty shelves in the college. And I discovered this bloke, A.S. Neal. And I thought, wow, now you're talking. And uh, the idea that kids should actually have a big, a big say in running their own school and should learn things that they were interested in and constructivism and Vygotsky, I thought this is all great stuff and Homer Lane and John Dewey. Um, anyway, I did quite well eventually and got onto the B.Ed. course, which was one year in the university um, in Oxford. And that was quite interesting. Um, because uh, Oxford University is a strange place. It's full of snobs and posh people. And as an example of the English social class system, it's agonizingly awful. Um, but I was married and with a couple of kids and uh, loved having access to libraries. And one of the fantastic things about Oxford is you don't have to go to the courses in your own subject. You don't have to, if you're doing history, you don't have to go to history lectures. You can go to ast astronomy lectures if you want to, as long as you ch turn up for your tutorial once a week and turn in the odd essay. Um, you could actually choose your own education by going to any of the lectures that were operated in the university. And there were thousands of them. Nobody ticked your name off and checked you were going to the right one. Um, I thought this was a really interesting way of doing things. Um, but uh, anyway, teaching practice. Um, uh, having read all these books about Dewey and Neil and Homer Lane, etc., I thought it would be fun to try it out. So I went off on my first teaching practice, which was a council estate primary school near Oxford. And the class six teacher, top year teacher then in a primary school was ill. So the head was delighted if I would look after the class for four weeks. It was Oxford, so there was no 11 plus pressure. All the kids would go to the local comprehensive schools. So I started by getting in early on the first day and arranging the desks and chairs in a circle. The kids were arri arrived and were a bit puzzled, especially when I sat in the circle. I explained that they could either study and present projects on anything they liked, individually or in groups, or they could do a lot of work that I'd prepared I made, it, I made it look fairly boring. Um, but anyway, of course, none of the kids chose to do my prepared work. They all wanted to do their own projects. I said the only condition was that they present their project to the class at the end of my stay. And I said, by the way, let's start every day with a class making and make decisions by voting. And our first decision was to start the day with a class meeting and decide it by voting. We voted on that to get things going. Um, 
it was a great success. Parents got involved. The head was delighted. Heads love it when parents love the school. I got A plus for my teaching practice. Oh, yes. Nobody chose to do the worksheets for the whole time I was there. The next teaching practice was in an authoritarian secondary school. It was a complete disaster. I took some history classes, and in one we talked about democracy, and it led to a discussion about how they felt about school. Word got back to the staff room. I was told in no uncertain terms that I was not to try out democratic meetings, but to get on with teaching the Industrial Revolution. And it was unprofessional to let the kids talk about what they felt about school. I was too sensible to let them talk about individual teachers, but I wasn't even allowed to let them talk about school. Anyway, because of my unprofessional behaviour, I wasn't even allowed to let the students prepare and teach lessons on bits of the syllabus they were interested in, which was the method I wanted to use. And I had a teacher sitting in the back of all my lessons from then on, keeping an eye on me. If I hadn't had a supportive tutor who'd been very happy with my first teaching practice, uh, teaching and I would have parted company, I think, at that point. But fortunately, there was a third teaching practice. Um, this was a, a more exciting rerun of the first one. It was in a primary school. The class teacher was an about-to-retire army officer with a little bit of an alcohol problem. And when I said I wanted to try and create a democratic class meeting and get these year kids, year six kids designing their own projects, I thought he might say, over oh, well, my dead body. But he didn't. He said, fantastic. I've always wanted to try something like that. Uh, let's give it a go. And I, we did it together. And it, was re it really did work brilliantly. Fortunately, the kids loved him for his slightly unconventional ways. He used to do handstands in front of the class if life got a bit boring. Once again, the head was pleased. Parents became involved and we ended the six weeks with a kind of class festival of kids' projects that involved quite a few parents and I got another A. So I thought, nah, I'm going to have to work in a primary school. That's okay, you've got more freedom in a primary school. I did this B-Ed year after that and then I had to find a job. Well, my third kid had just arrived and I presumed I'd find a job in a primary school. I had some possibilities in a couple of progressive private schools, but my politics said no. These progressive private schools seem to me to be pioneers of possibility, like Summerhill and Sands. Wonderful that they exist and they're an inspiration for the rest of us, but the state systems where the mass of kids are, and that's where I wanted to work. We have to change it. So when I saw an advert for a humanities teacher in an Aylesbury Secondary Modern School to teach English, History, Geography, Social Studies and RE to one class for 60% of the week, I thought, that sounds interesting. I really liked the head at interview. I didn't tell the whole truth about what I had in mind, but he already had some quite radical ideas, like he wanted some integrated work, though he admitted that the heads of the subject departments were opposed to the idea. Uh, he appointed the head of geography of another school as team leader, and with some more new young teachers, we made up the first year humanities team with a timetable planning hour every week, which I think is absolutely essential if teachers are going to work together in an integrated way. So the head was supporting us, 
that the heads of geography, history, English, RE and social studies all thought the whole thing was crazy and uh, biting away at their territory, which wasn't the best of starts. Well, before term started, the heads of these various subject departments sent us all loads of totally unconnected subject-based stuff which we were supposed to do. The team leader felt that our first year, as it was our first year, we should go along with this, not to upset too many apple carts. Although I knew, I knew that it wasn't really what the head wanted, so I kept quiet and decided to go my own way and see what happened. But once again, on the first day... I got in early and arranged the chairs in a circle and sat in the circle myself. I told them my name, I told them my first name and my family name and said it's okay in our classroom to call me Derry, but anywhere else it would have to be Mr Hannam, please, not to get me in trouble. I explained what the five subjects covered. You know, that history was the past, geography was how people lived in other parts of the world, social studies was how people lived together, religion was what people believed, and English was how we communicated. And sitting in that circle, I remember very well a little boy called David put his hand up and he said, Derry, that sounds like everything in the world. Can we study everything in the world? And I thought, what a wonderful start. So I said, well, I suppose it does. By this time, several people wanted to speak at once, so I got a book off my desk and said, I propose you should only speak when you're holding the book and that when you've finished, you should pass it to somebody else. And we had a vote on that. So that was our first class rule and the first idea of uh, making decisions collectively. We were voting then, making class rules. Um, fortunately, uh, um, I made copious notes every night. Um, so the book that I wrote is very detailed about the minutiae of how these class democratic learning community evolved with its class meeting, which evolved into class laws, a class court to enforce the laws. As we got more and more class laws, and then we had class clubs, a class newspaper, many, many student-initiated cross-curricular projects. Um, many jobs were created over the two years we, we were together everyone did something and many people had more than one job um, I see a lot of people are disappearing am I driving you crackers I think people are still here it's just oh. that some people are uh, closing their screens I, I, you know, I think I'm enjoying it a lot. It, so it, it your screen because you've had enough of it. <laughs> uh, too bad. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. We haven't lost anyone. It's just people uh, not showing their faces. Yet. Okay, you can see what, uh, <laughs> all the anxieties that were built into me at primary school. <laughs> anyway, what I found was there were thousands of things every day where you could make democratic decisions. You could have votes on, you know, everything to do with the life of the class it was possible to discuss and make a collective decision on so many jobs were created the popular posts such as editor of the class newspaper or chair of the class meeting or class secretary or class treasurer these were all elected and had deputies the secretary minuted all class meetings and sittings of the class court um, and everybody at some time or other experienced chairing a meeting, which I think is a really important thing um, to do. 
everyone learned to speak in meetings. Um, they even created a class tax system of a penny a week. I kept a pile of pennies in my drawer that kids could borrow from if they hadn't got their tax money for that week. It was very interesting that I suppose I had about 21 penny coins in that drawer. It used to go down a couple as kids borrowed pennies, and then it would go up a couple as kids paid it back. But the interesting thing is nobody ever stole it, and I think there would have been outrage in the class if anyone had well, I binned most of the prescribed work from the heads of subject departments as we found the kids needed more and more time for their projects. Um, I just did a few of the less boring items for appearances sake, really, in case any of them ever came into my classroom. It was agreed that everyone would share their project in some way with the rest of the class. That was universally agreed. The kids really enjoyed listening to each other's projects, even though they weren't necessarily interested in the content. They were very, very supportive of each other. And there was really no difference there, a gender difference. The class was equal boys and girls. The results of the projects were often published in the class newspaper, which ended up covering all the walls of the class. It moved onto the ceiling. It took over the blackboard because I didn't use it much. And there were articles, bits of the newspaper all over the door as well. There just wasn't enough room. I think in the end, they would have stuck stuff on the floor. Um, but the, the class newspaper became one of the main ways of uh, presenting the projects. I can't begin to tell you the diversity of things that people were interested in. You know, sport, there was a sports column in the newspaper, there was a music column, a fashion column, there was a model railways column at one stage. Short story writing and poetry became very, very popular. And the art and drama teachers who weren't part of the humanities team became very supportive and used the kids writing in their lessons Artwork illustrated the poetry anthologies that the class produced and sold to parents. Um, and then the kids started a class drama club and the drama teacher, when he had my class, would use their ideas for the drama club for his own lessons. That was really lovely. The creative teachers in the schools really, in the school really went along with it. Well, I've often talked about my first class and been told I should write it up. A year or two ago, two people particularly pushed me. One was Alfie Cohn in the United States, who believes it's really important that people who think in a different way about school um, should write about where their ideas come from. And Mike Fielding's an old mate here in the UK. Uh, he believes there's a rich radical tradition in English state education that is submerged, ignored and insufficiently recorded and unacknowledged. So he was encouraging too. So I thought, all right, I've put this off for years, but I sat down and made a start. While I was doing this, an extraordinary thing happened. A face appeared on my Facebook. It was a 50-year-old, 58-year-old balding man who I sort of recognised. I kept seeing him as a kid and thought, what's going on here? He said, I'm Andrew from your class 1H in 1969. I read an article by you in the TES and then I Googled your name and I, feel I found you're still at it. You're still working on all these crazy ideas all these years later. It was an amazing piece of synchronicity because I was just writing about an incident which he'd been involved in in my class 
45 years before. One day the head came to my classroom with some visitors and I wasn't there. You weren't supposed to leave your class unsupervised, but I did all the time because I could. I was in the library with some kids, but the visitors found 34 kids all working quite quietly on their projects. The visitors were puzzled but the room was virtually silent without any sign of a teacher. And Andrew, this 58-year-old who just got in touch with me, Andrew, who was the class chair at the time, explained to the visitors that they were having a class quiet time. He told them the class had a law that if five people found it too noisy, they put their hands up and the elected timekeeper would announce five minutes quiet. If anyone spoke in a quiet time, they'd have their names put in the book and five times they would have to appear before the class court on a Friday afternoon. Andrew explained all this to the visitors and then went on to tell them this is the bit I love. He said, uh, our teacher, Mr. Hannum, is a bit soft and if we didn't have our class government, it would be chaos in here. I thought absolutely beautiful. And I said to Andrew, whose face it was. that I'm, Andrew, I'm just writing about you. He said, oh, God, I remember saying that. I could poke my eye out, he said. Anyway, I said to him, um, you know, what have you been up to all these years? Um, by the way, when the head said I was leaving the class unsupervised, I said they were supervised. They were supervising themselves. And he sort of put up with this nonsense from me. He was a very nice guy looking back on it and pretty tolerant, probably quite courageous. Anyway, throughout our years together, uh, two years together, Andrew's projects had always involved transport systems. He'd gone off and done a big map of the Aylesbury canals. He was obsessed with the railways. And I told his parents on parents' night, and that, you know, Andrew's going to get a geography degree one day. And they sort of smiled politely and thought to themselves, this is a secondary modern school, mate. Nobody gets degrees from this place. Anyway, guess what? Uh, Andrew did go on. He did get a geography degree. And he was now deputy head of a primary school, introducing democratic methods in his school and in the other schools in the city. I thought, wow, there you go. When people say to me, your ideas are crazy, Derry, think about the damage you're doing to the life chances of these kids. Well, tell that to Andrew. Anyway, Andrew said to me, guess what he said? I'm still in touch with a number of kids from that class. They're all in their late 50s. I'm going to organise a dinner party for you and your wife, and we'll see how many of them know who you are. And so we turned up to a dinner party with seven or eight kids from the class. This is ridiculous. And they all had wonderful memories of the democratic learning community. And they all said it had turned their lives around after 11 plus failure being a disaster. And they could remember it now as an important experience in their lives, even though they didn't remember much else about school. So when tell, people tell me our ideas are crazy, I've got a bit of confidence in telling them you don't know what you're talking about because I've got some evidence from 60 year olds they are now all coming up for retirement and I won't go into the jobs they did. Some of them have written bits in the book, by the way, I'll do a bit of a sales pitch for the book. Um, uh, not all of them, they didn't all want to, but a couple did write extremely moving pieces in the book. So there's a whole chapter written by the kids um, in the book. Um, instead of getting fired, 
as I expected. At the end of a year, a year of this, other classes, the other six classes in the year group, were beginning to adopt some of the democratic practices. They, by the end of the year, they were all having class meetings, class rules, class courts, class clubs, class funds, class newspapers, much to the annoyance of my class, who, th who thought that they'd thought of all these things, and they were a bit peed off at the other classes doing them as well. Um, anyway, I didn't get fired. At the end of my first probationary year, the head said, hmm, next year, you know, I'm putting you in charge of the whole year group. When they move up from year one to year two or from, as it was, year seven to year eight now, um, he said, I'm going to make you year head and head of year, year eight humanities because I really want this to carry through for another year. Originally, I thought we'd just have this integrated set up for a year to bridge the experience from primary to secondary school, but it's gone so well, I want to continue it into the second year. Guess who was really, really fed up about that? The heads of the subject departments were about to lose another chunk of their territory while these lunatics moved their ideas into the second year. Derry's crazies, we were called by the head of English. Anyway, this was great because the head said, you can be involved in appointing three young teachers. And we've got three teachers um, who are already in the school who really want to be a part of this. So that was nice. And we adopted the pattern of democracy and project-based learning across the whole year group. We created a second year students parliament. We hooked up again with the drama and art departments who aligned their work to the humanities kids projects. We produced plays, poetry, anthologies, exhibitions for parents. The kids, because we had seven classrooms all down one corridor, the kids could move from one teacher to another. If one of the teachers was particularly expert at something a kid's project was on, they didn't have to work with their class humanities teacher. They could go and spend time with another teacher in a different room. And we just ended up with all the doors open and kids moving backwards and forwards. Again, that was Derry's crazy corridor where the kids aren't disciplined at all. They do as they like. The head also gave us use of the school hall. And I sort of tried to recreate my experience of Oxford. We encouraged anybody who wanted to, to give a lecture on anything they wanted to give a lecture on. So we had staff from other departments giving Friday afternoon lectures to anyone from the second year humanities, any kids who wanted to go. And that was a big success as well, because some of these teachers had never experienced having a load of kids coming to something that they were going to do because they wanted to, not because the timetable said they had to. And that really worked quite well as well. Um, well, we, we went as a class to give a lecture at a local teacher, teacher's college about how we were doing things. That was quite fun, too, because the kids said, oh, Derry, you've got to give the opening talk to explain what's going on. And uh, there were about 10 of the kids who volunteered to give a talk about their particular job and about how the class worked. It was quite funny because they wanted me to sort of get up front and take the flak. So I got up to explain a bit about what we were doing and all these student teachers were sat there with long faces saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, you know. And then the kids started presenting their stuff and, the, and these student teachers completely lit up. And from then on, we had groups of student teachers coming um, all the time. One day we got written up in the sun. That was a scary experience. 
Um, one of the parents had a report, uh, a brother who was a reporter on The Sun, and they asked if they could come in and sit in on a class meeting in the class court. I was a bit naive. I forgot to tell the head. Uh, anyway, these people arrived, and they were two very nice guys, um, and they sat in on the class meeting, and the kids asked them, what's it like? We've got a class newspaper. What's it like running a real newspaper? And that was all very nice. And then we came to the class court, and one particular boy, who was normally no trouble at all, had broken every class rule that he could for the week. So it was guaranteed that he would get into the court. And I wondered why the hell... He'd done this. I thought he was having a nervous breakdown or something. And then when the class court sat at the end of the meeting, the reporter and the photographer suddenly livened up. This is what they'd come for, the class court. And guess who's in court? But Ian, who'd broken all the rules quite deliberately, he knew damn well it was a clever piece of work, that if he broke all the laws, he'd be in class court and he'd get his photo in the sun. And he did. But the lovely thing about it was they wrote us up beautifully. It was not at all a hatchet job. But the son paid for the, a coach to take the kids to London. We stayed in London half the night watching our edition coming off the presses. The editor, Cudlip, signed every copy and gave the kids a presentation copy and we got back to Aylesbury at about four in the morning. It was an amazing experience, but it led to a lot of other involvement with the press, which I won't bore you with now. Some papers were less honest and less progressive than the Sun. I'll name two, the, the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail um, tried to do a hatchet job on the school. It was quite funny. Someone from the county offices was sent down to find out what this bloke was up to in Aylesbury. Turned out it was Tim Brighouse. I don't know if any of you know him, but he's he went on to become CEO of Oxfordshire and uh, did the research for the London Challenge. He's really nice bloke. Anyway, I realised that uh, what we were doing was turning these kids onto learning in rather a remarkable way. And at the same time, they were learning to manage a democratic community. And at this time, I was reading the work of Kohlberg and Gilligan about moral development. And I'll close my story about these kids um, by telling you one chapter in the book is given over to a girl called Jo. It wasn't her real name. But she came into the class late. She came from a travelling family. Her dad was in prison. Uh, her mum wasn't too keen on school, and nor was Jo. She'd had a very bad time in previous schools. She started stealing and breaking all the class rules and generally upsetting everybody. She never stole from anyone in our class, interestingly, and because she knew she'd come up before the court. But she and some older girls started bullying other kids. And in the end, the head, the head said to me, I'm afraid she's going to have to go, Derry. We're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to exclude permanently and the kids in the class heard about this and one night after school I was going back to our classroom and there were about 10 of my class kids walking down the corridor I said where are you going what's going on and they said oh we're having a special class meeting to talk about what we can do for Joe and I love this they said to me you can come if you like I was the, the class teacher in theory, you know, the big authority figure. They said, you can come if you like. Anyway, I did like, 
and about the half of the class who didn't go home on school buses were sat there and they were told what they'd heard that Joe was going to be excluded and they wanted to do their best to stop it. And they said, what should we do? And I remember one slightly Aspergesy boy saying, well, we should punish her one day and be nice to her the next and see if that changes her. Well, the others didn't like that idea much. In the end, they decided because they thought she ought to learn what it's like to have to deal with kids who were antisocial, they decided that the chief magistrate, there were three in the class, he resigned, David, and uh, we elected um, uh, Joe to be chief class magistrate. Uh, and then the chair of the class meeting, a girl called Rosalie, said, uh, I'm going to stand down as well and we'll elect Joe as chair of the class meeting. So when she comes in tomorrow, she'll be the most important person in the class. When she arrived, um, there was a special meeting and she twigged early on that it, it was something to do with her. And the uh, chair of the class meeting resigned and the chief magistrate resigned. And uh, the deputy announced that the new chief magistrate was Joe and the new chair of the class meeting um, was also Joe. At which point she burst into tears and ran out of the classroom. A couple of kids went to fetch her and she came back in floods of tears and said, nobody's ever been kind to me in school before. And actually, she proved to be an excellent chief magistrate, an excellent chair of the class. And I was able to persuade the head not to exclude her. And her antisocial behaviour just came to a stop. I tell that story because I think it's a very interesting example of moral development. Uh, Kohlberg and Gilligan talk about stages of moral development in the same way that Piaget talks about stages of development. And you could actually see these kids not just changing their attitudes to learning, but growing into being moral human beings. It was very exciting and one of, the, one of my biggest reasons for advocating democratic education. Right, nearly finished. In the book, I, I consider a dilemma that I've never really resolved. There's someone waving their hand. Do you want to say something? Sorry, I can't say. Yes, put your finger on your chin. Oh, no, she's okay. All right, lovely. Just smiling. Um, a dilemma that I've never resolved, which is how much do you tell your bosses and your colleagues what you intend to do before you do it? especially if to some extent you're making it up as you go along. The old saying has it that it's easier to explain afterwards than get permission. And I absolutely agree with that. That's what I've done all my life. But if you don't forewarn, then you shouldn't be surprised if you meet resistance. Like these heads of departments who lost control of years seven and eight as integrated humanities was introduced. So I recommend having a good think if you're in this situation about who's going to be affected by what you plan to do. Make sure you've got cover from above and friends who you trust to work with you. Two together are so much stronger than two separately. Three is better than four while well, you're really motoring. I often like to say you become effective by the square of the number of you working together. So one is one, but four is 16. You really start to get some power. So find friends. So this advice, um, think about what effect what you're going to do is going to have, is advice that I've regularly failed to practice. So... Um, but I never got fired. 
uh, though perhaps came close to it a few times. The parents, I have to say, were overwhelmingly supportive during these first years, in part because they were so aware of their kids having failed the 11 plus, they were thrilled to see confidence coming back. This, of course, kept the head happy. My biggest problems came from staff unsympathetic to the development. They were annoyed, I don't blame them really, by this upstart just out of his probationary year, or because their subject departments were being undermined. On the whole, the kids had no problem with switching from the democratic atmosphere of the humanities classes to the normal conventional authoritarian ways of the other teachers, maths and science, for example, but there were problems. Maybe just tell you a quick one if I can. My class had a maths teacher who shouted at them all the time, shouted at them. And they got noisier and noisier because they were being shouted at. And they didn't tell me. I'd said to them, look, these methods we use in our class, they're just for our class, okay? Don't try them out elsewhere. I'm going to have real problems. Anyway, the maths teacher was shouting at them. They were making a lot of noise. Five hands went up. The timekeeper said, five minutes, quiet. The whole class went silent. The teacher continued to shout at them. Why have you gone quiet? They wouldn't tell her, which was a bit naughty. And they wouldn't tell her because they had to have five minutes quiet. So nobody could speak to explain what was going on. The teacher was very upset. And really, in a way, I don't blame her. And she complained to the union and the head teacher about my irresponsibility and unprofessional behavior. Oh, dear. The head said to me, look, mate, don't cause problems for me. I support what you're doing, but tell those kids it's okay for your class and it's not okay for anywhere else. Should I have explained to all the other teachers of the year how my class was working? I expect I should, but I didn't because I was too nervous about being told not to do it. And I've never really um, got, to, got to the answer to that one. I'm finishing now, but in my, in my second year, the head got me to start a school council. It wasn't a student's council, it was a school council. All the staff were represented as well as all the kids. By this time, I was in charge of the second year and we had a second year parliament and a second year council. He wanted to expand that to the whole school and he wanted me to chair it. In my second year of teaching, you know, I wasn't too sure about this is asking a lot, but it was what he wanted and he'd been nice to me, so I went along with it. First meeting was okay, was fairly smooth. Second meeting, the second year committee had put on the agenda, why are some teachers late for lessons and we have to wait outside the classrooms till they come? And the fourth year humanities, uh, year 10 now, had put on the agenda, we're fed up with waiting so long to get our coursework marked. Uh, by the time we get it back, we've forgotten what it was all about. Oh dear. Um, at the beginning of the meeting, one of the union reps stood up and said, I want these items immediately removed from the agenda. So I thought, help, what do I do? Um, uh, do I have a vote whether to remove them or do I remove them, which would be undemocratic? So I looked at the head teacher and I, he just looked out of the window. I thought, you bugger, you're letting me carry this one. And uh, so I did. I thought, blow it. I'm going to have a vote. So we had a vote. And of course, all the kids, when they'd heard uh, rather 
important teachers in the school asking for something the kids back down um, but later, the interesting thing was the fourth year head of humanities, the year 10, he said, I would have been perfectly happy to answer that question about late coursework. It was all to do with moderation in the exam board, and we could have explained it to the kids. But it shows the kind of battle lines that were forming between the Democrats and me. And uh, at this point, I was uh, offered uh, um, head of humanities an enormous 2,000 kid purpose-built school 20 miles up the road in Oxfordshire in Bicester. Lovely brand new humanities building built with the ideas, you know, with a theatre, um, a recording shop, uh, an art space. It was built for integrated humanities and Oxfordshire was wonderful at that. Um, so I moved on. Um, to this school. The book, by the way, after this experience, the book is mainly about my first two years of teaching. Um, and I conclude it with some theoretical chapters. But I went on to become head of humanities in this big school. I then became head of year, head of sixth form, head of house in other schools. I worked in three schools, eventually became uh, deputy head and acting head of my third school and I think that's another book because I never stopped doing these things but there was so much to say about those first two years with this sort of experimental class and how rapidly the democracy spread through the whole school. Um, probably it was a good thing that I left because it left things to calm down a bit and settle down. I honestly don't know. Um, and I've, I'm still in touch with some of the teachers from the school and said a lot of things came to a stop when you left, but not everything. And the idea of uh, democratic projects in lower school humanities, the idea of every year group having a council, the school council, all this carried on and went from strength to strength. Anyway, I end the book with a couple of speeches that I gave in UDEC conferences uh, in Greece and Ukraine, um, where I try and argue that self-directed education in a democratic context is absolutely crucial for the future of the fourth industrial revolution, climate change, and all that implies. So the two guiding principles of self-directed self learning in a democratic and rights-respecting context have stuck with me. I went on to become an inspector. I won't talk about that. That was probably a bad career move, but it did mean that when the government tried to close Summerhill, I was able to work for Summerhill against Ofsted with the fully accredited Ofsted inspector's ticket. And it was a big help because I could see what a load of rubbish the inspection was and how they'd arrived at the school intending to fail it. It was a very badly conducted inspection. And to be able to point out to Geoffrey Robertson, the barrister who is a genius in court, all the things they'd done wrong was actually very useful and helped us uh, win the case. So my career as an inspector sort of came to a fairly abrupt end after that. I've got a whole lot of ideas um, for people who want to try this approach. And I don't know if there's any young teachers here who will be looking for jobs shortly. I mean, I would say, for heaven's sake, don't take any old job. I think I was lucky, but to some extent, you make your own luck. 
you need to look for what it is you want to do and then try and find a place where you can at least make a start about doing it or you'll soon lose your way. I find it very depressing to meet young teachers who've been in the job six months, they left college full of dreams and ideas and after six months in a real school, they've almost caught the cynicism of the older staff. And then to have a profession where 50% of people who've been in it for five years want to get out of it is, you know, we're in a terrible state. Um, but I would still say that if you look for the right clues like team, planning time, integration, cross-curricular, innovation, creativity, project-based learning, participation, student voice, self-directed learning, sustainability, well-being, electives, climate change, blah, blah, if you can find any of that, um, then those are some key things to look for. Uh, one that I find, uh, I, I, I mean, if you look at school mission statements, they often are quite close to worthwhile purposes. They talk about becoming good citizens. They talk about a worthwhile career. Uh, they talk about fostering lifelong learning. They talk about helping each child fulfill their potential. And then you say, excuse me, can I have a look at your timetable? And there it is, 20 minutes music, 42 minutes history, 18 and a half minutes physics, blah, blah, blah. The whole subject-based curriculum, which makes almost no sense to most kids, makes some sense to some kids who can learn it by rote and get good grades in the exam and then forget everything. Um, so mission statements can't be trusted in schools. You've got to look at what's actually going on in the school. Um, look, I'll stop there, but I gave a talk earlier in the week on the importance of trying to open up 20% of curriculum time in schools for, for kids to be able to study things they're interested in, the 20% project. I find this is catching on, and it's certainly catching on in the States. Um, and the interesting thing is it's linking in with current employment practice with go-ahead companies like Google. I don't know if you knew this, but Google allow their staff to spend 20% of their paid time working on projects that are interesting to them, but nothing to do with their actual workplace work. And out of this came Gmail. Uh, a woman called Wojcicki in California created Gmail, and I think AdSense as well came out, or AdServe came out of this 20% time. 3M also allow their staff 20% time. So it's not such a crazy idea. Um, anyway, look, uh, if by the you can get the book, you can download 20% of it for nothing. Um, and that, you know, so you don't have to waste any money. If you use this uh, code, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the chat. It's UE53J, UE53J. And you go on to Smashwords website and put my name in or the title of the book. Um, you can get it for half price. Uh, that's $2.43. What's that? Less than a Starbucks latte. Um, and if it, if it really bores the pants off and you think it's a waste of money, um, I'll happily uh, refund your money. Anyway, look, I really will stop, uh, just in case there's a question. <laughs> How long have we got, uh, Jess? Can we go over for a few minutes? I can't hear you. Yeah, hello. <laughs> I think the next session is on the other Zoom account, so I think we can go over for a couple of minutes. That's oh, great. Okay.
Uh, there's a question in... Oh, no, so it's not a question. It's, it's a statement in the chat. What does it say, Derry Adams, in that case? Terry, you've been a really engaging speaker. I'm so sorry I was late. Looking forward to reading your text. <laughs> oh, I've got it. Yes. Great. Yes. Uh, who's that? Um, anyway, well, that's nice. Thank you. Hiya. Um, I have a question. Yeah, Jess. Yeah. Um, how many hours did you get with your class a week in order to... That's a really good question. Yeah, it was about 60%. It was more than half time. Wow. It was all the time that would have been allocated to English history, geography, social studies and RE. It was about 60%, just over actually. So it was a big enough chunk of time to really develop a way of doing things almost like you can in a primary school. Mm. Um, uh, it, it enabled our humanities team to become a really strong force in the school. And the head, I have to say, hadn't thought that through. The head had not really thought about the consequences. And when he saw what was happening, like he looked the other way at that difficult school council meeting, <laughs> he tended to do that a bit. I think he was a bit like me. He was making it up as he went along. He didn't know quite where it should go. He was just hoping it would go in a good direction. Nice. There's another hand. Yeah, that, that's, oh, oh, sorry. Jemima. Yeah, Jemima, hi. Um, thanks very much for that. It's really interesting. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you were saying, did you say year one? I was just wondering what age that was. I couldn't quite understand, is it? My class? Yeah. It was the first year of a secondary modern school. Oh, I see, so, right. So it was the, what would now be year seven, and then it was first year secondary. So it was year seven, and then the project moved forward into year eight. Got it. And then to some extent, it moved forward into year nine. And then when it got to year 10, it hooked up with an existing year 10, 11 integrated humanities project. So eventually, um, the subject departments, to some extent, lost uh, their status completely in the school. <laughs> but that was after I left the hookup between year nine, year 10, 11. Mm. I had one other question as well, um, which was, I've done a bit of work in schools on the extended project qualification. I don't know if you're aware of all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering what you thought about that, because it looked for a while as though that might really grow and that they started to introduce not just the A-level um, level one, but the sort of further down the schools. And I thought that might be a really interesting sort of way for this sort of thing to develop, but it doesn't seem to be happening as much as I thought. Sorry, your moment. No, it was an, a very interesting opportunity. And one of my own grandchildren, when she was in the sixth form, funnily enough, she chose as her extended study, democratic schools. <laughs> she came with me to visit some in, uh, in France. We went to Ecole Dynamique. We went to the Sudbury School in Harderwijk. And she wrote her project on democratic education. The school couldn't have been less interested because it didn't really matter for her A-level grades. They didn't take it seriously. And that's my impression, unfortunately, because it's not an important part of the ACAS package. It ought to be, but it isn't. So it hasn't really taken off. That's my opinion. It's a nice idea, and I'd like to see more of it. 
Yeah, I found it brilliant working with that. I was um, in, in charge of uh, sort of helping 64 different kids with 64 completely different projects. And it was amazing what they did. It was complete, it was a math school, King's College London Math School, but they, they did all sorts of stuff. Some of them, you know, cycling across Europe projects, some of them music AI, some of them building robots, could it be anything. So I, I just felt, it felt like the beginning of something, but then it sort of died in the water a bit. I've been doing some work in Denmark with the International Schools Network um, and they use the IB um, and of course that allows for lot, lots of scope for these, in fact it insists as part of the qualification community service and the kind of extended projects you've been talking about but unfortunately our A-level system doesn't. It seems to me it's the worst of all worlds a-level seems to exist in order to avoid universities having four-year courses instead of three because our A-levels are just about the only um, school leaving qualification. If you compare it with uh, baccalauréat in France, Matura in Austria, or what's it called in Germany? Um, uh, the gymnasium. Abitur. Arbiter, yeah, um, and Bakrut in Israel, um, you'll find they're always very broad courses um, at sixth form level. And the specialization doesn't really start until university. And I feel universities have had a stranglehold over our curriculum in England, and it really ought to stop. Well, um, thanks for listening. I, I suppose uh, the book's doing quite well, actually. I was quite surprised. E-books, I'm told, only sell to the tenth, roughly, of a paperback. But I was interested. I put it out as an e-book because um, it's, you can make it so cheap. Um, you don't, and actually, you do just as well out of it as if it was in a paperback. So I've been giving money away. I gave the first lot away to East Kent Sudbury School because I think they're great, and a bit to Aero uh, in the States because Jerry Mintz has plugged the book for me. Um, and it'll be in paperback in the end. I think e-books are a bit fiddly to use if you've never had one before. But as I say, it's possible to make them cheap. It's not done badly. It's sold about 300 copies so far. And in fact, one teacher training class in Canada has taken it up. All the students are using it and talking about it. Well, that's really exciting because I had young teachers in mind, you know, um, go into school with some ideas and stick at it, find some friends, find a school like the XP School in Doncaster or School 21 in London, or what, what do they call themselves, the big school network that School 21's a part of. They're already doing this kind of thing within the state system. So if you're looking for a job where you can develop and get experience on these ideas, the opportunities do exist, but they're few and far between, and you've got to look carefully for them. There's one more question in the chat, Derry. Oh, is there? Sorry, uh, yeah. see the chat. Just That's the last one. <laughs> Let's have a look at the chat. Did you ever have young people who weren't sure what to do with that freedom, not knowing what project to do? What a good question, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, I mean, well, I didn't really. I, I'm often asked this question. 
I mean, I was prepared for it at my first teaching practice, and I really did have a lot of work that kids could do um, if they couldn't think of anything with themselves. Um, I've met a really nice... I've been working with ten, 10 head teachers in India for the last few weeks who are trying to become a bit more progressive and democratic in their schools. And one of the things we've discovered is an outfit called Sparks. Have you ever heard of it? There's 5,000 people of volunteer who are enthusiastic, passionate about something, you know, from violin building to cross-country canoeing or whatever, are passionate about something. And they've got this vast catalogue and they're willing to spend four sessions, four half days at with kids who can look at the catalogue and say, yeah, that might be really something that really turns me on. They can spend four half days with the professional enthusiast who will then kind of mentor, mentor them into taking it further. There's an outfit in California called OutSchool that um, was working with about 100,000 kids at the beginning of the lockdown, and now they've gone up to 300,000, where... Uh, kids, parents and teachers can get together and request a course and they've got a vast catalogue of courses. I think there are 8,000 of them. So if you've got kids who like the idea of following their own interests but aren't quite sure where to go with it, there are these catalogues developing that they can look through and dip into this and dip into that. Um, I know Ian Cunningham at the College for Self-Managed Learning in Brighton occasionally gets kids um, who, when they're expected really to come up with a, a study plan of their own, don't really know where to start and take a while to get going. And I think that's where there's still a role for the sensitive adult, whether we call them teacher, facilitator, staffer, as they do at Sudbury Valley, whatever we call them, there is a role for the sensitive adult to just sit down with the kids, talk life over with them until something comes up. But I've never found children will hold out forever. Um, if I think sometimes they say, well, I'm not interested in anything. You say, well, you're interested in nothing. That's a sort of response to the traditional school-pupil relationship. Um, I, I know Zoe Redhead said to me at Summerhill, and Neil used to say that sometimes it would take as long as a year for kids to stop playing, not that there's anything wrong with playing. I totally agree with Peter Gray about play. And in a way, my classroom democracy was a kind of play democracy. Um, but who would never seriously get down to anything. It would sometimes take a year to detox themselves from compulsory schooling. Um, we have to be patient, I think. We certainly don't have to make kids feel judged or tested or assessed for God's sake or graded because they haven't been able to think of a good project. If we start grading the quality of projects, God, we're in trouble. There's an interesting people called the 20 Time People, a network in California, um, where they do, they're quite tough when kids come up with a project. They get interrogated a bit about what, it, what good is this going to do for other people? Um, are you really going to be able to sustain it? How much homework have you done in uh, what materials are going to be available to you? They're quite tough and quite rigorous in insisting that the projects are carefully thought out. Uh, 
some people who work in this way do that and some don't but i must say i have no problem with it i was a little bit like that with the kids i worked with when i said look you can study whatever you like but i would like you to share it with the rest of the class um when you think you're ready to do so so i would never tell them you must be ready by april the 1st your timetable to take a lesson on something bell ringing or whatever no but i would encourage them as the project drew to a close to be willing to share it with the class sometimes they do it orally more often than not actually but sometimes they do it in writing in the class newspaper and that was fine by me but thanks for the question sarah my god somebody's bought the book it's not one of you is it help <laughs> No, Smashwords send me an email every time someone buys it. The analytics are amazing. Um, they have a map and you can see who's bought it in southwest Kazakhstan this week. You know, it's really quite unnerving and quite extraordinary. It's sold best in Canada, interestingly. Though I've just sold a little batch in Israel and a, bit, a few more in Turkey. It's going okay in the UK, but someone in Canada has really got the bug. Thank you very much, Canada, whoever it is. I don't know. If anyone would here would like to use it with their class in the university, that would be great. I'll give you an even bigger discount. Are we done? I think so. That was so great. I've, um, I'm Thank going back so into teaching in September, so you've re-inspired me just in time. <laughs> Well, stay in touch, Jess, and uh, yeah. stay in touch. And, you know, if you want someone to just sort of look through some school mission statements for you and point out the bullshit. Um, oh, I love or, that. <laughs> or, or, the ones, or the ones that look as if they might be telling the truth. Um, and Because I, I, I've made a bit of a study of this, and it's not just true in this country, but in the United States, the disconnect between mm. mission statements and reality is almost total. Um, and it's not good enough. We ought to hoist them on the petard of their mission statements. All right, you're making good democratic citizens. How much time do the kids spend making democratic decisions in your school? And how much notice do you take of them? You know, the one about encouraging lifelong learners, how many kids are bored stiff in how many of your lessons and how many are being put off learning for life by that? You know, the ones who talk about worthwhile careers, I would say to them, well, can you explain to me what worthwhile careers have 20 minutes music, 18 minutes physics, 42 minutes history, 11 minutes something else, blah, blah, blah. What workplaces are organized remotely in a way that resembles what goes on in schools? So I think we can hoist them on the petards of their mission statements, and we really ought to do that more often. Excellent. Okay. So um, thank you, everyone, for coming. And thank you again, Derry. That was absolutely brilliant. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.